Thanks for joining us today at the Vine Church. We are one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this message with others or click on the give link below. For now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message.
morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. I'm usually with you all at the earlier service and not up here. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to share. Um, and this is the third and final week of the Fixer Upper series. Uh, two weeks ago, I believe it was David was sharing um, the first message about, and he focused on how marriage is designed by God. It's not just something people thought up. And it also forms as an illustration for not only human relationships and how we should frame them, but also our, a better understanding of our relationship as humans uh, to the Lord. And then last week, Andrew um, shared about how even though in a romanticized version or view of relationships, I think there's even a line in a, a movie, maybe it was um, Jerry Maguire, where one of them looks at the other and says, you complete me. Um, actually, we're called to be completed by the Lord. We shouldn't put being totally completed up to someone else. Uh, so our life, we are created so that we are completed in our relationship with God, not our spouse, but on the other hand, our relationship with our spouse can be um, centered around our relationship with God so that it is experienced to the fullest and that our marriage can be a model for God's uh, view and relationship with us. Now, I, I realize that not everybody is married or not everybody will be married. There are some applications here. And there was actually a time in my life after I just graduated from seminary when I thought the Lord might be calling me to a celibate life. Um, and I was reading the story of this guy who uh, he intentionally never got married. And, and I was, you know, kind of drawn into that. But I'm, I kind of realized that I was co-opting his call upon my life. And so Vicki and I met after I moved to Virginia, and, um, and I was glad that, that, that I had an opportunity to meet her, and, um, and we've been married now for 36 years. But my relationship and my fulfillment in life isn't dependent on her fulfilling me. Uh, it has to be a part of the greater picture of my walk with God. And Andrew talked last week about how just like when they get out the sledgehammers, which is, I think, the part of the show that guys like the most and knock down walls and, you know, break things, uh, he identified problems in marriage that, that we sometimes need to uh, tend to, and he looked at the causes of marital problems, the top three big ones. So if you weren't here last week, I would suggest that you uh, check out that podcast. So this week, they've entitled this session, Finishing Touches, which is when uh, Chip and Joanna, at the end, have a big door and they reveal what the new house, the fixed up house looks like. I don't think we're going to do that today. I don't know what's behind there. I think, I think it's not a picture of a beautiful house. On the other hand, uh, it's important to realize that when we talk about finishing touches, uh, we're not just talking about cosmetic changes or cosmetic surface things. In fact, um, I think last week Andrew said even though um, his parents or his dad was a fixer-upper kind of guy, he isn't. He, hadn't, he didn't exactly say he didn't know which end of a hammer to hold, but um, he kind of gave that impression when he was talking about how, much, how at home he is with doing handyman work. Uh, on the other hand, Vicki and I both grew up in houses that our fathers built. So we kind of come from a line of, of do-it-yourselfers. And we also own a house in Virginia that my grandfather built in 1911, 107 years ago, on the York River in Virginia. But nobody has lived in that house since 1938. And um, a few years ago, we bought my cousin's interest out of it. And so we, we own that home now. And fixer-upper is very much on our radar screen. We're hoping to get it to the point of um, being in, I mean, it's pretty good shape. But the thing is, one guy told us, because uh, I've never restored an old house before, he said, you have to pay attention to two important structural things first. Make sure the roof is intact, no water coming in, and make sure the foundation is solid. Make sure 
that these interior things are done first before you start doing other things like plastering the walls and, and cosmetic work like that. So uh, in a marriage, problems occur also when we tend only to cosmetic issues. I remember um, when I served as a pastor full-time, uh, some of you already know my, my full-time vocation now is helping uh, people who are getting ready to move overseas to learn how to flourish in other cultures. But I used to be a pastor both uh, in Virginia and also um, in Ghana, West Africa, when we were serving cross-culturally. And when somebody would come to me and want, when a couple would come and they wanted to be counseled to get ready because they were going to be married, a lot of times it was a little initial work had to be done to help them see the difference between preparing for a wedding, which is very much on their minds, who's going to do the flowers and all this, and preparing for a marriage. And a lot of times, even that distinction is kind of an aha. And so, likewise, in our relationship with Christ, when we think about the relationship with him, it's, it moves beyond just standing at wherever, praying a prayer of repentance and all that. You know, that's the wedding, so to speak, that the marriage is working out that relationship as my life continues. And the same thing is true in our relationship with the one who is closest to us in human relationships, if we're married, it's our spouse. So this morning, we're getting, or is it still morning? Yeah, okay. So it will be, don't worry, we're not going to go. <laughs> I try to be real careful about that. And, and when we lived in Africa, um, I tell people, uh, you know, when we lived in Africa, they would often have worship services that last two and three hours long. Because, uh, well, I don't know, it's just a cultural thing. But don't worry, we've been back in the States long enough I know the expectations, all right? Um, so let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, going to look at verses 21 to the end of chapter 5. If you have a Bible or a Bible app or you just want to read it on the screen, we'll have that up there. Now, before I read this passage, I want to acknowledge this is Paul, a first century Jewish follower of Christ, and when we look at the scriptures, we need to realize some things are said because they're straight out of heaven, transcendent truth, non-negotiable. But also, when you read the scriptures, you have to understand the context in which it was written 2,000 years ago. So there are some cultural things at play as well in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. For example, Paul at one point says in another part of his one of his 13 epistles, he says he does not permit a woman to speak in church. Or another, play, another place he talks about how women should uh, have their head covered and have long hair. These are cultural things, I believe, if we use the gift of our brain to apply as we read the gift of God's word, it makes more sense than simply indiscriminately pulling scriptures out of context and firing them at other people. So let's have this in mind as we read the scripture. Beginning with verse 21 of chapter 5, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, it says be subject, but you know what? The words be subject are in italics in the New American Standard Version, which is one reason why I like that translation, because it indicates when that word was not in the original Greek language, but the English translator translators put it in there for better understanding. And while getting down to that type of granular level at looking at this may seem a bit technical, I think it's important when we read the scripture to say, okay, this is something someone added so I'd understand the meaning more. It's not actually in the original text because the original text actually says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands. 
That's what it literally says. We're not going to get this technical all the way through the message, don't worry. But I think it's good to point some things like this out when it is relevant. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives, it doesn't say ought to be in the Greek, it says wives to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, and now he's quoting from Genesis, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Now, as we look at this scripture and wrap up our sermon, our series on um, marriage, I think we need to look at the very first verse that I read and frame the rest of it in that context. Because in verse 21, it says, be subject to one another. He's talking to husbands and he's talking to wives that we would submit to one another in the marriage bond. And I think it's interesting that as we look at this, I kind of want to land on one verse specifically, and that's verse 25. Even though Paul's addressing it to husbands, I think it applies to both. Let's look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I think it really is a call for husbands and wives to love each other as Christ loved the church. I mean, I can't imagine some, uh, a, a wife saying, well, this only says I have to respect you, not that I have to love you. You see, we can, we can nitpick or lintpick the, the New Testament for our own purposes and lose the spirit of the message itself. Well, if the, if the word says that we are to love one another and in the marital relationship love our spouse as Christ loved the church, then that begs the obvious question, how in fact did Jesus love the church? And that's where I really want to focus this morning. And so the first thing that I want to kind of share about how Christ loved the church and continues to love the church is that Jesus came to us incarnationally. Now, incarnational is not necessarily a word we use a lot. It actually was, you may have noticed, in the word, it was a word that we used in the prayer that we prayed at the beginning. But it simply means, when we talk about Jesus coming incarnationally, it simply means Jesus came in the flesh. He came in real flesh and blood. When God wanted to communicate with us as best and as understandable that humans could receive, God didn't send a book of rules. He didn't send a set of religious regulations for us to follow. He sent his very son, Jesus Christ. And the centerpiece of the gospel is that God came in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. John's gospel puts it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when Jesus came in human condition, one thing that, I, that helps me understand what incarnation is all about is the word understand. Jesus came to understand our condition, to live 
in it so that we can relate to God through him. In the book of Hebrews, it says, um, we do not have a high priest, referring to Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because basically he has experienced those things as well. So, so if I am to love my spouse as Christ loves the church, it means that I must spend time and energy and focus seeking to understand, seeking to understand her. And that often comes, A, by understanding how I'm hardwired as I relate to her and how she's hardwired, and B, simply taking time to listen, which innately is not one of my gifts. There's a little graph here or a little table that sometimes I use because um, I teach Myers-Briggs uh, sometimes, and um, it, it measures personality type. I know there are other instruments like strengths finders and a lot of different ways of looking at this human, this very complex creation called a human, and they're all very interesting. This is just uh, one little glimpse. So in the red column, um, how I interface with my spouse, if, I, if my life is basically self-centered and revolves around myself, uh, then it will probably have a negative impact on those close to me. So if I have a similar personality type with the one closest to me, I will see that as competitive. On the other hand, if I have a Christ-centered perspective and we have similar personality types, then, I'll see, then we'll be more compatible. Uh, if we have different personality types and I look at relationships rooted in a self-centered perspective, then there'll be all types of conflict. On the other hand, if I allow the Lord to inform who I am and how I behave, then uh, my relationship with my spouse, if we have different personality types, won't be conflicting, but rather will be complementary. Now, Vicki and I, uh, it wasn't, we, let me back up a second. There's some research that shows the younger you get married, the more likely you are to marry your opposite in personality traits. And the older you, get, you are when you get married, the more likely you are to marry somebody who is more like you in personality traits. This is not, you know, 100%. It's a tendency that shows up in the data related to some research. We weren't all that young when we got married. I was 26, she was 24. But we're opposite on all four personality scales. And we didn't even know about these person this personality instrument until we'd been married about six or eight years and we were living in another country. So there's that whole cross-cultural thing laid upon it as well. Because I always just thought, okay, well, you know, that's wrong. <laughs> that's, that's not only a different way of looking at things, it's a wrong way. And, and so, thankfully, I think the Lord's helped to transform that thought a little bit. <laughs> but uh, it's important for us to spend time, if we're going to live incarnationally with the one whom God has placed in our life as our spouse, it means we take the time to listen and learn and understand one another. Understand how we're hardwired and then learn how we can grow together as we lean into each other. Now, it's interesting. Just in the past, I was thinking about this the other day. In the last two weeks, I've learned definitely one thing, maybe two new things about my wife that I never knew before. I'm not going to tell you what they are. I'll tell you when you've known her 36 years. But I thought, you know, it's pretty cool to learn new things about one another because you're spending time leaning in, asking questions, having actual time when you're having deep or good discussions, things like that. It, it, it's just a matter of listening, learning, growing together. It's not rocket science, but 
when I look at how Christ loves the church, as he came incarnationally, it means we simply need to be present to the one who is special in our life. The second thing I see is how Christ loves the church is that not only did he come to live incarnationally, he loves us unconditionally. Now, unconditional love is not something that naturally comes to human beings. We are kind of hardwired to serve ourselves. We believe we're born in this thing called original sin, where we, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born hardwired to, to serve ourselves. We're born as selfish people. And therefore, uh, when we look at the example of Jesus, like when he, a lot of times when he's getting ready to heal somebody in the Gospels, it will have the little phrase, and having compassion on him, or sometimes when he looked at a crowd of people, the person writing one of the four Gospels would say, and he looked out over the crowd and Jesus had compassion on them. Once, uh, it says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so I'm not born with this capacity to have unconditional love, but the good news is I can allow transformation to take place in my life that increases my capacity to love unconditionally. And I want to introduce a phrase, maybe you've already heard it, if you've read um, theology or philosophy or spiritual formation, and that phrase is simply our way of being. Your way of being um, it's not a, a new phrase. In fact, um, we're going to go back now about 800 years to a German um, um, mystic named Meister Eckhart, and he uses that phrase, translated from German, in this quote. Now, I know, I know he could have smiled a little more when they painted his picture, but I think that hat is in fashion because I, I actually saw Gus wearing one like that not too long. But he said, so many people come to me asking, how should I pray? How should I think? What should I do? And the whole time they neglect the most important question, how should I be? You see, our way of being is who we are on the inside, and it's reflected in our demeanor and our behavior. So, if I'm, you know, if I'm hard-driven and task-oriented and not people-oriented and always have a frown on my face, that's usually a function of my way of being, being expressed in my behavior. Or I'm joyful and peaceful, or, you know, condescending and angry, or conceited and, and aloof. These are things that are determined by my way of being. Now, Fast forward 600 years to the 19th century, another German theologian named Martin Buber. Now, his name sounds kind of funny in English. It isn't all that funny in German, I don't think. But Buber said this, your way of being in the world is what is most fundamental to human experience. Now, that's a pretty significant statement. But then he goes on to elaborate. There are basically two ways of being in the world. We can see others as people, or we can see them as objects. Now, you might say, well, I don't see other people as objects. I just see them as people. I was at a church not too far from here, and I happened to be teaching on... Um, uh, reaching out and loving our Muslim neighbors. This guy came up to me. He was a member of the church, and he was so angry, he was almost shaking. And he said, I've got a neighbor. I think he's an imam. But he dresses like a terrorist. I mean, there's just this anger coming out of him as he's talking. And, I, and he, he lived, has been his neighbor for four years. And, th and this guy actually said, I just want to throw a pork chop in his backyard. I wanted to say, you know, where in Jesus' teaching does it say anything like that? So, see, he was, and so I said, um, well, what's, what's your neighbor's name? I don't know. I've never met him. <laughs> okay, 
That's an extreme example of viewing somebody as an object. You know, a category of people as an object. But even you can, you know, drill down to something very personal and individual. Like, let's say I come home from a long day. It's a, it's a summer evening, and all I want to do is lay on the couch and take my God-ordained nap. And Vicky says something like, you know, were you going to mow the lawn this afternoon? Okay, I can either view her as an object, that thing that's keeping me from my nap, or I can view her as a person and listen to her needs. I'm not going to have her come up now and tell, her how, tell you all how well I'm doing in areas like that, but, but hopefully I'm improving. But there's a difference between viewing people as objects and viewing them as people, and it has to do with our way of being. Our way of being is observable by others, but it can also change. Maybe six or eight months ago, uh, our son, Jake, who's a singer-songwriter. I'm sorry I didn't get your approval to tell this story, but um, I told it to the first service, so hopefully it's already okay. He came over with a friend of his uh, who, who grew up in our neighborhood. Okay, if I use his first name, probably so, yeah. I used it in the first service. <laughs> his name's Chandler, and, and Chandler's also a, a um, singer-songwriter. And I hadn't seen Chandler literally in 20 years because we used to live in Snellville. We moved to Sugar Hill. He became an adult and went off. And, but he's, he's a singer-songwriter now, and his band's getting some traction. And um, Jake said, Dad, Chandler has something really funny to tell you. And I said, oh, what's that? And I thought it was really going to be funny. Well, he said, well, Mr. Decker, um, you know, and, and when he was like five or six years old, he told me this story. And as he told me the story, I remembered it. I hadn't thought about it for years but he said, you were working on your car in your driveway, and I came up, and I was asking you all these questions about, you know, what's this, what's that? And as I think back, I was trying to diagnose why the car wasn't running well. I was trying to think that through. And you know what? I treated Chandler as an object who was in the way of me concentrating. Because what, I, what you know, he reminded me that I said to him, hey, Chandler could you just like go off somewhere and play somewhere else? And as he told me that story, I just felt, you know, horrible. Uh, and I said, um, I'm sorry, Chandler, would you forgive me? He goes, yeah, sure. But my way of being was dictating my behavior. But the good news is that we can change, that the Lord can enact transformation in our lives if we allow it to take place at a deep level and not at a surface level. I'm going to play now one of, one of my favorite quotes from the mouth of the person who said it, um, a fellow named John O'Donohue. If you've never read any of his books, he's a, he was a Catholic priest, uh, and then he became kind of a, a, a philosopher and poet Unfortunately, even though he, he was born one year later than I was, he died about 10 years ago in his sleep suddenly and unexpectedly. But John O'Donohue, um, we're going to listen to just about a minute and a half of a quote, because I want you to hear it in his Irish accent, about him talking about way of being. I mean, when I used to be a priest, it was an amazing thing, you know. Uh, you'd see somebody who would be dying over a week maybe and had lived maybe a hard life where they were knuckled into themselves, where they were hard and tight and unyielding and everything had to earn its way to their centre. And suddenly then you'd see that within three or four days you'd see them loosen and you'd see a kind of buried beauty that they'd never allowed themselves to enjoy about themselves surface and bring a radiance to their face and, and why spirit. did it surface then because suddenly like there was a recognition mm -hmm. 
that the time was over and that this that that their way of being could no longer help them with this and that another way of being was being invited from them and when they yielded to it 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 was became transformative and it, it just means that actually when you change time levels that something can transform incredibly quickly mm. i mean i always think that that's the secret of change that there are huge gestations and fermentations going on in us that we're not even aware of. And then sometimes when we come to a threshold crossing over which we need to become different, that we'll be able to be different because secret work has been done in us of which we've had no inkling. I love that. And, you know, the good news is we don't have to wait till we're on our deathbed for this to happen inevitably. We can allow the Lord to do deep work within us at whatever point we find ourselves in right now. So the third thing, in addition to understanding that the way Christ loved the church first was to come in the flesh and understand us, and secondly, secondly, to love us unconditionally, the third thing I see about how Christ loves the church is that he loves us sacrificially, just like in that verse 25 Love your spouse as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the idea of laying down our lives as followers of Jesus shouldn't be an alien idea it's throughout the New Testament. On the other hand, it's not something that comes easy to us. It's something that we have to work on. But the problem is the way we work on it is sometimes like this. We focus on the outer level of behavior, like, okay, I won't eat that, I won't eat that, I won't eat that. What do I do? I eat it. Uh, or, you know, because I'm an extrovert, I tend to talk a little more than I should. Like in a meeting, I'm getting ready to go to a meeting. I'm not going to talk as much, I'm not going to talk as much, because I'm focusing on trying to tame the behavior. And instead of saying, I won't do that, I won't do that, I won't talk as much, instead I should be looking inwardly and asking the question, why do I feel the need? to talk so much? What is it inside of me that causes me to do that? And Lord, how can you address that? So here's an illustration we use in um, cross-cultural work. Uh, we use the analogy of an iceberg, where uh, an iceberg is above the surface. If we could throw that picture up there of the iceberg. Yeah, thanks. And so it's our behavior is that what you see above the surface. Our beliefs and our values are kind of in the middle, but all of that is determined by the deep thing deep within, which we call worldview. Or another way of looking at it is through this diagram. Our worldview is at the center, determining what is real. That determines our beliefs, which ask the question or answer the question, what is true? And then our values, what is good, and finally our behavior, what is done. And so you can see that, for example, let's say I have a problem being impatient in traffic and not letting others in. Well, maybe that's because my worldview is a world that revolves around me, and so it dictates a value that I'm in more important than others, and therefore my time is more important, and it could play out in the behavior that I'm not going to let someone out, else out in traffic in front of me. You see how if we focus on worldview, it's much more transformative than if we focus on behavior. And that's how our way of being can experience transformation. We're going to go ahead and have the band come up as we're starting to wrap up. But I'm thinking about a conversation I overheard when we were living overseas. And um, it was a, we were friends with this couple. They're from another country. Uh, he was a little older, and let's say he, he came from a paternalistic culture. And the wife was complaining about how you know, they had two young boys, and he never helped in the house, and he, he never did anything to help out. And she was talking about his behavior, and he said something that expressed his worldview. 
when she was talking about all the work she was doing, he said, but you were the woman. Okay, right there, there's a glimpse into his behavior being determined by his beliefs and his values being rooted in his worldview. But brothers and sisters, the good news is at the very deepest level of our worldview, our way of being can experience transformation so that we can learn to love that special person whom God has put in our life in a way that's sacrificial, listening, and unconditional. I'll keep my mind